Good morning, Sailorville. What a great confession. That should be the confession of every born-again Christian. God, I need you. It was at a um, retreat in the mountains of California that... Um, in fact, it was the very retreat center, the very area where Billy Graham dedicated his life to ministry. I preached there a few, several years ago now, and in the audience of men at a men's retreat, there were two Lebanese dudes up in the top looking down at me. I got to meet them after I preached for the first time. One was a follower of Christ, the other not. So I put my bullseye on the guy that wasn't saved and shared Christ with him. But I got to know his brother. Unbeknownst to me at the time, he was already in an up-and-coming ministry. Many of you know of the ministry of Ray Comfort, and uh, Easy Zwayne is the son-in-law to Ray Comfort, marrying Ray's daughter, Rachel, who's with us as well. And um, so we struck up a great friendship. He's a great brother in Christ. He spoke to us at our Thrive Marriage Conference, where we had a wonderful time over the weekend. And a, a hundred couples from here, from Sailorville, enjoying uh, the ministry there at the... Uh, I think we got some pictures, but maybe, won't, maybe we don't have them. But at any rate, uh, so great, great time there. Uh, Easy preached some tremendous messages, and our hearts were stirred. And he's got one today for you from the Scripture on compassion as we reach people for Jesus Christ. So without further ado, let's give a Sailorville welcome to my dear friend, Easy Zwayne, as he comes and preaches the Word of God to us today. Thanks, man. Wow, after that amazing introduction, I cannot wait to hear myself speak. <laughs> what an absolute delight it is to be here with you all. It truly would be a massive understatement to say that I'm honored. And what a joy it was to be with the couples at the Thrive Retreat to get to know them and what God is doing in their lives. I bring you very, very, very warm greetings from Southern California. <laughs> I mean, let me tell you, I don't know how you saints survive this, but I, I was like, man, I'm getting out of my car with a cup of hot tea. By the time I reached the door here, it was iced tea, you know? <laughs> Unbelievable. It was extremely kind of Pastor Pat to give me this very gracious invitation. There was actually another speaker who was originally slated to fill this slot, but as soon as Pastor Pat found out I was available, he quickly canceled Billy Graham. So thank you, Pat. <laughs> so grateful for that. And as Pat mentioned, yes, I do have the honor of serving in ministry with the legendary Ray Comfort. And as Pat said, Ray is my father-in-law. Ray is of Jewish descent, for those of you that didn't know, and I am of Arab descent. And together, we are the solution to the Mideast crisis. <laughs> We're going to travel the Middle East with a head garb and a yarmulke preaching peace wherever we go. Well, I'm excited to get into the Word of God with you all, so let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your precious Word. We pray this morning you would touch our hearts with it, you would move in our midst and be radically glorified. We thank you and just commit this time in our hearts to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. By God's grace, I have been given the privilege to travel and speak to different audiences all across America and different parts of the world. And whenever I travel, I typically like to take one of my five children with me. 
A few years ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a conference in Ohio, and I took my now 15-year-old son, Luke, with me on this particular trip. And in the course of our journey, we found ourselves traveling through one of the busiest airports in the United States of America. And after making it through security, which is often a miracle for this very innocent-looking Arab, <laughs> my son, Luke, points to the left-hand side, and he goes, Papa, Papa, look, isn't that one of our ministry's million-dollar bill tracts? So I look to the left-hand side and I see a counter. Behind the counter are three police officers. I look on the counter and I see this little metal card stand and on it is this rectangular looking object. And so I'm looking, I'm wiping my eyes. I'm thinking, come on, it can't be. So I start walking over to the counter, you know, I'm like this, and, which is by the way, a bad idea for an Arab to do in an airport. You know, <laughs> how are you? La, 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 la. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> I don't recommend it. So anyhow, I get to the counter and I look on the counter and I realize my son Luke was wrong. It was not one of our ministry's million dollar bill tracts. It was an entire stack of our ministry's million dollar bill tracts. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, what in the world? At this point, one of the police officers starts to walk over toward me. I said, excuse me, officer, I'm a bit confused. My ministry prints these tracts up and I have no idea how they got here. And he looks at me and he goes, easy. And I go, ah, it was Ray Comfort. I had nothing to do with this. He goes, oh, easy, I love your ministry. I can't believe you're here. This is amazing. And suddenly it starts to dawn on me. And I look at him, I say, officer, did you put these tracks here? He goes, yeah. I go, and they haven't stopped you? I'm thinking, they haven't busted you yet? He goes, not yet. <laughs> I remember thinking, it's coming. I was so blown away by this. I give the officer one of my cards. I said, officer, please email me. I'd love to get in touch with you. So I come home and I find this email in my inbox from this police officer. He said, good morning, sir. As the subject line says, it was nice to meet you and your son yesterday at the airport. Yesterday was the first time I have ever set the tracts out at the law enforcement podium, even though the thought occurred to me a few years ago when I first learned of your ministry through a homeschool conference. When my two partners and I arrived at the podium yesterday, I pulled out the tracts and set them up. They were curious and read the tract, including the gospel message on the back. That then sparked a conversation that lasted several hours. I used info from Ray Comfort, Vody Bauckham, Ken Ham, and all the other info I've picked up from a variety of sources like the Bible. They were not getting it. They challenged me on everything from ancient aliens to why are the Jews God's chosen people. Then you walked up and you looked like an ancient alien. <laughs> I made that up. Then you walked up. After you left, I had to explain who you were and the total improbability of you walking up at that moment. As one of my partners put it, it was like having an Amazon Kindle on display, talking about Amazon products, and then Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon, walking up. Using God's blessing of mobile internet, I showed them livingwaters.com, 180, Noah, God versus evolution, and whatever else was up on the screen. After a 10-hour shift of witnessing, I believe they will begin following Christ. How awesome is that? And you can only imagine, brothers and sisters, how overjoyed I was when I read this email from this police officer. I mean, you think about it, like he himself pointed out, what are the odds of something like this happening by chance? Of all the days that we could have been traveling, it happened to be that day. Of all the airports we could have been traveling through, and you know how many there are in the US, it was that one. Of all the different security checkpoints we could have gone through, it was that particular checkpoint, and there were many. 
of all the days that that officer decided to put those tracts out after he thought about it for a few years, it happened to be that day. And of all of the things he could have been doing when I walked up to that podium, he was sharing the gospel from one of our very own gospel tracts. If you don't believe in the existence of God, you have got problems. And so you can imagine, I was just overwhelmed with joy. It was a very blissful, euphoric experience for me. I mean, I was walking on water, floating in the clouds, glowing in the dark. To have had the opportunity to have seen God move so wonderfully and so divinely orchestrating something that was undeniably providential. Now, brothers and sisters, I wish that I can tell you all this morning that every single day of my 26-year walk with God has been like that day. A day full of bliss and euphoria and excitement and supporting emotions. But this morning, I cannot tell you that every day of my 26-year walk with God has been like that day because I live in the same fallen world that you all live in. And like you, I'm bombarded by busyness and by chaotic circumstances and unfavorable situations and difficult people. And at the same time, like you, I live in a very, very Christianized atmosphere. Sometimes we don't realize that here as Christians. I've been to 31 countries around the world, and I've seen what countries look like that are not saturated in Christ. And I've been to even countries that are supposedly Christian nations, and trust me, they don't have what we have here. But it's kind of like a fish not knowing it's wet. We're so saturated in it. And we are. I mean, think about it. We hang out with our Christian friends. We go to our Christian Bible studies. We read our Christian books, listen to our Christian music, watch our Christian movies, wear our Christian apparel, don our Christian accessories, and some of us, believe it or not, even eat our Christian breath mints. Yes, they have them, Christian breath mints. Lifesaver, brother? Oh no, I only do soul savers. What's next, Christian deodorant? Forget Old Spice, it's New Creation Spice. Frankincense and myrrh scented. Wouldn't surprise me one bit. But see, there's something dangerous about this. When you take people who are in the midst of a very busy, chaotic, unpredictable, difficult atmosphere with undesirable circumstances and challenging people, and you combine that with the fact that we are also living in a very Christianized atmosphere. And as believers, especially here in the US, we're constantly moving in and out of that realm. We're again, saturated in it. Sometimes involved in ministry activity out in the secular world. And in conjunction with that, we are what? As 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives to the world. And sometimes in our interactions with the world, with the unsaved, what ends up happening because of these two points of tension that I just mentioned, we end up involving ourselves in Christian activity, even representing Jesus, but without the right Christian heart and attitude. And that, my brothers and sisters, is absolutely tragic. How do we do it? Especially in a day and age where there's so much decadence, so much rebellion against God, so much blatant and brazen sin. How do we as God's people walk through this world with the right Christian heart and attitude? And I've seen we cast aside a lot of those attributes that should mark us. And one of the most that should mark us most that we cast aside, unfortunately, is the attribute of compassion. 
If there's anyone in the world who should be marked by compassion, known by compassion, identified by compassion, over whose head there is a banner that says a compassionate people, it should be us as a people of God because no one has ever experienced as much compassion as we have through the redemption in Christ. But often we lack that. So this morning, I want us to take a look at an account in the life of our Savior, who was our forerunner, who was our example, who was the perfect model, who didn't just say to us, go and do this. He came into this earth as a man walked it and said, watch, this is how it's done. And for that, we turn to Mark chapter six, beginning in verse 30. Mark six, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told them all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. If you grew up in the 1980s like I did, you know that we had very little by way of reality television. We poor deprived souls had to depend on scripted television programming to satisfy our entertainment needs. We had, of course, the great dramas like A-Team and Knight Rider and Airwolf and Magnum P.I., we had sitcoms like Different Strokes and Happy Days and Saved by the Bell and Family Ties and Growing Pains. You can imagine how strange it was for me having watched Kirk Cameron on television, seen his poster on every girl's wall to then be speaking at conferences with him and doing ministry. Mike Seaver, you know, it was strange. But as you heard me rattle off all those different television program titles, uh, some of you were, were laughing, right? I mean, you're, be, you're beginning to become haunted again by the theme songs that never leave your head. Once in a while, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and Laverne and Shirley is just blaring in my head, right? But something drastically changed in the year 2000 when the first reality television programming hit the airways with programs like The Bachelor and Survivor and Big Brother, and suddenly the entire landscape of the television world shifted and now you can hardly find anything that is not reality television based. And why is that? It's because television executives came to realize that there's something in the human heart that absolutely loves to see things as they are. We wanna see things unvarnished and unscripted. We wanna see people with their hair down, their feet up, their makeup off. We wanna see things real and raw. And brothers and sisters, this passage here, Mark chapter six, if you would, is a reality television type moment in the life of Jesus and the disciples. When suddenly the lights start blaring, the cameras go on and it's action. We find them in the heat of the moment. And in the midst of this, in this real trial, while surrounded by unfavorable circumstances, by difficulties, by trials, by people that are challenging, we see our Savior rise to the occasion and demonstrate compassion towards these people. Now, sometimes it's easy to read a passage like this and just take it for face value. And when we look at it, we think, what's the big deal? Here are Jesus and the disciples. They're out. A crowd follows them. Jesus gets up. He sees the crowd, is moved with compassion and starts to teach them. But there's much more than meets the eye. We need to understand the context to appreciate the compassion of Christ. 
And so we look at Mark 6, verse 7. It says, And he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Then in Mark 6, verses 12 through 13, it says, So they went out and preached that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So this is what was going on in the midst of our context here when Jesus stood up and looked at the multitude and was moved with compassion. He had just sent out his disciples on this intense missionary journey, and Matthew chapter 9 tells us that Jesus himself was participating in the same activities. So Jesus was out, and the disciples were out, and, and, and what were they doing? What was Jesus doing? He was preaching the gospel. I'm sure all of you have experienced preaching the gospel in one degree or another. Maybe not many have stood at a pulpit and preached, but listen, preaching, as some of you may know, is intensive. It's very taxing and trying at times. In fact, scientific research tells us that a one-hour sermon is equivalent to eight hours of physical labor. So Jesus and the disciples weren't just up preaching about happy things, but they're preaching the everlasting glorious gospel to hardened sinners. And it tells us at the same time, they were dealing with demonic activities and casting out demons. I doubt very many of us have ever done that. I've dealt with demonic activity, and let me tell you, it's not something to be desired. It's not a walk in the park. It's intense. It is extremely spiritually taxing on you, and it's not something you look forward to. So they weren't just preaching the gospel. They were dealing with intense demonic activity, but at the same time, it says that they were anointing with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. They were healing people. That sounds glorious, but can you imagine being surrounded by hundreds or thousands of infirmed, sick people? who are coming to you and you're seeing them in their diseased state and their dejected composures and their pain and their cries. You take all that and put it together and you realize how difficult it is. But on top of all of that, in verses 26 and 29, immediately preceding our text, which began in verse 30, tells us that John the Baptist, Jesus' beloved relative and the dear friend of the disciples, was just brutally murdered by decapitation. So this was what was going on. Can you imagine the difficulty of that? Mourning and weeping and grieving. That's what was happening. The disciples just finished this intense missionary journey along with Jesus. They were preaching, casting out demons, healing the sick. John the Baptist, Jesus' beloved relative, was just beheaded through a, a gruesome death. People were coming to them from everywhere, so much so that it tells us they didn't even have time to eat. They were trying to get away to rest. And all of a sudden, a multitude of 5,000 people show up at their doorstep. And at that moment, with all this going on, Jesus stands up in the midst of Christian or ministry, religious activity, in the midst of trials and difficulty and unfavorable circumstances and people, he stands up, looks at this multitude, and is moved with compassion. Sometimes dynamic texts like this are lost on us because we're detached from them because we can't personally understand them. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Jesus or in the sandals of Jesus, if you would, and imagine if this happened to you. Imagine having had one of the most difficult weeks of your life. I mean, things were just going crazy at the office, one fire after the other. You've worked 60, 70, 80 hours. You can hardly get sleep at night. It's, it's back to the office. You're almost sleeping in your office. You're, you're just worked and you're, you're totally spent and drained. One of your beloved relatives just dies, not just a natural death of old age, but a gruesome murder. You're weeping, you're mourning, you're about to have a nervous breakdown. All of a sudden, your boss comes up to you, puts some tickets in your hand, says, hey, I want you to go to Hawaii, all expense, pay trip, go out there and just rest. You hop on a plane, get to Hawaii, walk in your hotel room, drop your bags, put on that nice, warm, fuzzy robe, put the slippers on, kick your feet up. You're just about to pop the first bonbon when all of a sudden, 
You hear this at the front door. And you open it only to find 5,000 of your smiling clients like the Cheshire cat. Aloha! I don't think my account would read, and easy was moved with compassion. I think it would read, and easy was moved with murderous rage. But not Jesus. He looked out at this multitude and it says he was moved. Not just that he was compassionate, but that he was moved, stirred, roused toward compassion. Tells us that he saw them for what they are really. And see, here's a mistake we often make as Christians. We elevate the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God, the second person of the triune Godhead, at the exclusion of remembering that he was also 100% man, that he was like us in every way with the exception of the sinful nature. That like us, he experienced tiredness and exhaustion and pain and grief and sorrow. And in the midst of that and being involved in the spiritual atmosphere, he was still able to have compassion and give us an example to follow. But why? It's because he looked at the crowd and saw them as they really were. And sometimes I think that can be deceiving us because we think, oh, well, he's Jesus, you know. But yeah, but it tells us in John that he didn't need anyone to bear witness concerning to him concerning man for he knew all man and what was in man. He didn't just see the facades that we see. He didn't see just the, the fake expressions people can put on to seem nice and friendly when they want something from you. He saw beyond that. He saw their wicked, wretched hearts and every sin they'd ever committed was directly against them. He knew that but he was still able to look and see them for what they were. He was able to see them as entrapped sinners who were ensnared by the repercussions of their own sinful folly and the sin and folly of other entrapped sinners. Yes, they were guilty sinners without any justification, but they were also entrapped. They were wounded by their own sin. It says he saw them as weary and scattered. The word weary means distressed. It originally means flayed, torn, mangled. The word scattered means thrown down, prostrated as if they've been cast down themselves or have cast themselves down from weariness. Wow. Isn't that what, what happens in the world? As people are entangled in their sin, as they're blinded and lost, just wounding themselves, stabbing themselves, ripping out pieces from themselves, torn, mangled, broken, and they're spinning in this tailspin without God, without Christ, without wisdom, without the foundation of his word. And they are so worn out, they're casting themselves down from exhaustion. Jesus looked and he saw them as that. But it tells us that he also saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And that is in the parallel passage in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Sheep without a shepherd. And in that passage, he talked about what our heart should be in that regard. But we forget oftentimes what it's like to be shepherdless without the loving shepherding heart of Christ. What's a shepherd do for his sheep? He guides them, provides for them, protects them. Is that not what Jesus has done for us as his people, guiding us in the truth of his word, providing the wisdom of his Holy Spirit, protecting us from Satan and his lies? The world doesn't have that. They are lost and blind and in the crosshairs of Satan and they are like sheep that are fleeced as the religious leaders were doing that to the people of that day and age as false religion is doing that to the people in our day. And he told them in Matthew 9 to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send out laborers into his harvest field and I assure you, he didn't just want them to pray. He wanted them to be the answer to that prayer, that they themselves would go and be his agents of compassion. Is that not our calling as God's people? 1 John 2, 6 says, he who says he abides in him ought himself to walk just as he walked. That's what the name Christian means, little Christ, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. 
Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Christian, like Christ in the way that we live. It says he looked at him and he was moved with compassion. Here's the definition of the word compassion. It means to feel deeply or viscerally, to yearn, to have pity, a feeling of distress from the ills of others, to suffer with another, to have mercy, to alleviate the consequences from the sin or suffering in the lives of others, to bear, to treat with gentleness. In other words, compassion means you get in other people's shoes and you take a walk for a few miles. It means that you're able to look, and as it says here, you look at them and you feel deeply or viscerally. You know, we as Christian leaders and pastors are always encouraging people to be careful of emotions because they can be deceptive and misleading. But if there's ever a place for proper emotions, which are given by God, it should be in the context of unbelievers. One preacher famously said, listen, if they can't hear Jesus in your voice, let them see him in your tears. That we would be moved, that the very depth of our being would be stirred as we look at unbelievers who are lost and blind and on their way to hell. That we would be connected to that emotionally. That we would yearn and have pity on them, seeing them in their lost state as they're weary and scattered and shepherdless. We'd feel a feeling of distress from their ills. We would want to suffer with them. We wouldn't want to have mercy to alleviate their consequences. Compassion doesn't just look and say, oh, I see where you're at and I feel so bad for you. It says, I want to enter your world and I want to rescue you out of it. That was a heart that Jesus had for these people. And listen, you have to understand that compassion does not mean compromise. You can be a truth preacher without compromise in the least bit and yet speak the truth in love and have compassion for people. And yes, this is a multitude, but remember, the definition of a multitude is a group of individuals. I assure you that Jesus didn't look out at these people and see them with blurry vision as just one big mass. They were made up of individuals that were fashioned and formed by God, each of them distinctly in their mother's womb who bore the image of God. And I think oftentimes we forget about the individual. C.S. Lewis said something very convicting. He said, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Now listen to this convicting saying, he says, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Wow. There's a famous preacher who says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> ouch. This is convicting because that's often what we do. We look at people with that blurred vision. We see them as a multitude and we can say, oh, I love them. I love those people over there. They are individuals that I love, but do we love him and her? Do we love John and Tom and Mary and Linda and, 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 and George and Paul and, and Kathy? Do we love individual people? because people have individual lives and stories and, and hopes and dreams and sin and wickedness, all of it rolled up into one glorious mess that God wants us to enter into and have compassion on people for his glory. A number of years ago when I pastored, there was a coffee shop that was right next to where our church was. And Oftentimes during the week, bands would come and play in the coffee shop and then the band members would usually take a break and go outside to have some coffee or a cigarette. And one day as our midweek service was ramping up, I was going in and out of the sanctuary getting ready and I noticed that our people were outside, a few of them interacting with some band members that were outside taking a break. And 
it didn't take long to realize that our people were not representing the compassionate heart of Christ toward these unbelievers. So when there was a break in the conversation, I interjected myself and I looked at these young men that our people had been talking to and I tried to do some damage control. And I said, look, my friends are speaking truth to you. And I went on to, to talk to them without compromise. I shared the fact that they had broken God's law. They were under his wrath. Hell was coming, that there was a day of judgment. They needed to repent, place their faith in Christ. I preached the grace and love of God, the death and resurrection of the Savior. And then I looked at this young man. His name was Seth. I will never forget him. And I, I said, Seth, I just want you to know that I shared these things with you today because I care about you. I shared these things with you today because I love you. And then he looked at me in a way that I will never forget and said something to me that I will forever treasure in my heart. He looked at me after telling him I shared what I shared with him because I loved him and cared about him. He looked at me and he said, I can tell. I can tell. And I remember I walked away from that and I said, Lord, I never want any other evangelistic encounter that I ever have to ever end in any other way than like that than the unbeliever to know that I did what I did. I shared what I shared with them because I love them, because I care about them. Compassion will lead us to do extraordinary things. And let me tell you, because I think some of you in here, or maybe all of you maybe, are like fish in water. You don't recognize what you have in your pastor and in your leadership here at Sailorville Church. I've spoken in hundreds of churches and conferences and retreats all across the world, and I have yet to meet anyone as passionate for lost souls as a pastor than Pastor Pat Nemers. It's, it's so encouraging to me as someone whose life is all about evangelism. I can't tell you how many times during this trip and my last trip here, he would point out individuals, that person, this person knows their names, this person got saved, he came to Christ, telling me their stories with excitement and passion and enthusiasm. So you're not short on examples. May you follow that example. May you get into people's lives, not just preach the gospel while being disconnected in the midst of your busyness and in the spiritual atmosphere, but may you love them with the compassion of Jesus. In closing, I wanna share with you an account of a Facebook encounter I had with a homosexual young man. I've changed his name to John for the sake of his privacy. But I want you to listen to this and have kind of a fly on the wall sort of an experience and to see what God can do when we determine to do what's right and to be compassionate for his glory. I had posted something on Facebook about the importance of standing up for truth and not compromising yet being compassionate. And I looked through my comments I have 5,000 plus friends. I've never sent out a request to anyone. These are all requests I receive to, to friend people. Uh, and so I don't know most of the people on there. So I just saw this statement in one of my posts after I posted that and it said, shame on you. So I wanted to find out what it was about. So I wrote and I said, John, greetings to you, my friend. I hope you're doing well. I noticed that you recently posted a response to one of my posts in which you said, shame on you. I wasn't sure if that was directed toward me or someone else who had made a comment. It would be great if you could possibly give me some clarification. If I said something to offend you, I would definitely want to know what it was so that I could hear your thoughts and think through it. Thank you so much, and God bless you. And so John responded. He said, I have struggled with my sexuality since I could remember. Even at a young age, I felt a special affection for the same sex. You think you understand these things, but you have no idea how difficult a struggle and a life we live. You just like to talk and a lot. I'm a child of God and I know the Lord as he knows me. You will never reach or save a homosexual, bi, transsexual the way you're going. I'm a college student. I was saved years ago and studied the Bible then and now. I love all. 
Don't bother with preaching me a sermon. I know what you think and what you have to say about all this. As a human being to another, have compassion, understanding, and love for others who are not like you. There are millions of lives who need real love and help, not just another cookie-cutter Christian who knows it all. Ouch. I mean, obviously, I had hit a raw nerve, and as you can tell, John was pretty upset. He was quite stirred up. So I responded. I said, John, thank you so much for your response. I really appreciate it. I will pray and think through what you said and will respond after that. Have a blessed night. And that's exactly what I did. You see, I knew that I had before me here a precious soul made in the image of God. This was a real person on the other end. They weren't a number. They weren't a statistic. They weren't a nameless face. This was a human being and God divinely brought him into my life. And I didn't want to blow it because I'm prone to. That example I shared with Seth, by God's grace, was one of the good examples. But I had made many mistakes in my representation of Christ. I didn't want to do it this time. So that's what I did. I got alone with God. I sought his face. I said, Lord, give me wisdom that I might represent you well and have a heart of compassion. And so I responded. I said, John, thank you so much for your patience on my reply. As I had mentioned, I really wanted to give thought to what you had written and to also pray over it. I know that this may be hard for you to believe, but I really do care about you. I can't even begin to imagine how difficult your struggle has been and you have my deepest sympathy. If you were ever in harm's way and I happened to be present, I would readily take a bullet in your place. The Lord is witness to the sincerity of my heart in this regard. And you are right, I do talk a lot. There are times I definitely end up regretting many of the things I say and wish I could take them back. Obviously, some of the things you've heard me say must have fallen short of true biblical love, kindness, and compassion. And for that, I humbly ask for your forgiveness. You're also right that I don't understand what you've been through or the struggles that you have had. I will honor your request and not preach to you. However, I would like to share some videos with you from people who do understand your life and what you've been through. It's fully up to you if you want to watch these. If you don't, simply ignore them. Here they are. And then I shared a number of YouTube clips of men who used to be in homosexual lifestyles who repented, were delivered, and were walking victoriously in Christ. I said, if you would ever like to dialogue about anything or need anything at all, please know that I would be honored to speak with you or serve you in any way I can. And if you're ever in the Los Angeles area, please come by Living Waters for a visit. I'd love to give you a tour and treat you to lunch. Thank you so much for taking the time to correspond with me. I'm very grateful for that. Your friend, easy. So John responded. He said, easy. Thank you for showing love and compassion. It means a lot. I've been in a roaring storm that started my first year of college. I came to Christ before starting school. I came out to friends and family during my first year because of my rebellion, even after being saved. I love the Lord. I know I have done wrong, and in this place and time, I don't know what to do. God has been with me in my family. He has done miracles in our family, which is why I know he is with me. I feel my spirit and his voice calling me. My life is full of sin and I don't know where to turn or what to do anymore. I feel like God has also been silent. I don't know what he wants me to do. I tried praying and asking for help, but due to my participation in sin, I don't think he is helping me. What can I do? I guess I know the answer to that. Thank you for caring. Sincerely, John. That was quite a turnaround, don't you think? from being hardened and, and accusatory and angry to, to suddenly opening up his life to me. So I said, John, I'm deeply touched by how open you've been with me. I realize that you didn't have to do that. I don't take that trust lightly. I've been praying for you since receiving your message and I will continue to intercede for you. Then I asked him for his email address because it's difficult to correspond by Facebook and I was gonna write him a very detailed letter showing him that you can't claim to love Christ and not do what he says, that you can't truly be born again and yet live knowingly, rebelliously in a homosexual lifestyle and say that's okay. 
And then he said, thank you. I said, uh, he said, thanks, Easy. My apologies for what I said. As I mentioned, life has been difficult and sometimes my flesh gets the best of me. You don't talk too much. Yes. <laughs> Vindication. You don't talk too much. I was upset. You have a great ministry and the way you talk is good. I've seen you and Ray speak many times. I've never felt that you said something offensive. You're always respectful and kind. Have a great weekend. I said, thank you, John. No worries at all. I fully understand that things have been very difficult for you. I am so glad that you, we got to connect, my friend. I'm really looking forward to writing to you. Have a great weekend. And before I had a chance to send him that long, detailed letter, I got this last email from John. He said, thank you, Easy. I just want to let you know I've gotten right with God and I'm running for his heart and everything. I don't want to let go of him and fall into that lifestyle again. As much as my flesh would love, I choose God. I've watched some of the videos you emailed me and they really ministered to me in a big way. So thank you and praise God for a new season in my life. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is an example of what compassion is can do. Listen, why can we be compassionate as Christians? Because we've been the greatest recipients of it, as I said in the beginning. Ephesians 2 tells us, for we ourselves, or, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Listen, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, but he saved us. As Titus tells us, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But then the Lord rescued us. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, that what? That such were some of us in a whole list of sins, and they're including homosexuality and many other vices, but the Lord delivered us so that we can now show compassion to the masses. So I pray that we will follow the example of Jesus, that like him in the midst of busyness and trials and unfavorable circumstances and trying people, we're able to look out on the masses. We're able to see them as weary, as scattered, as torn and mangled, as cast down from exhaustion, as shepherdless. And then we'll look out upon them, we'll be moved with feelings of pity and want to enter their world and rescue them with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its truth. May you help us to leave here today determined to be doers of it, eager to live out its precepts, eager to be one with you as we emulate your heart, the heart we've experienced ourselves from you. Help us not to be forgetful and teach us to receive your wisdom and instruction and guidance. We thank you. We praise you. Ask you to draw our hearts near right now and help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.